Vandana Shiva is probably most well-known for her eco-activism in India, but she's generally just an overall badass that is going to stand for human rights, for the rights of the earth, and not care what big organizations or forces are aligned against her. She understands her first principles and values, and she's going to stand for them. She's incredibly wise. She's a prolific author who's written many books that have shifted culture. And it was just a real honor and pleasure to sit down and have this discussion with Vandana Shiva. But first, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Helix Sleep. And I just want to let you guys know that Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for all the listeners. So for those of you who are already convinced that Helix is the shit, make sure you take advantage of this offer. Go to helixsleep.com amp. Now, if you're not familiar with Helix because you haven't heard me talk about it, of course, one of their flagships is the mattress. They have an incredible mattress that's free of all of those toxic chemicals that you smell when you get a mattress from one of those shops that's in one of the outdoor malls, strip malls somewhere. That's not the way, y'all. The way is you get these mattresses delivered to your house risk-free. There's 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, mattress for big and tall sleepers, mattresses made for kids. They have a whole lineup and a whole bunch of associated different sleep accoutrements. They even have a sleep quiz that'll help you find out your perfect mattress in under two minutes. They will ship you your mattress straight to your door free of charge so you don't have to worry about a bunch of shipping fees. There's a 100-night risk-free trial. Like, obviously, if you didn't believe in your product, you wouldn't give a 100-night risk-free trial. And they should believe in their product. Their product's great. We have Helix mattresses all over everywhere that we sleep because why well they're the best and sleep obviously if you've read my book own the day own your life you understand that that's such an important quality of our entire life and helix can help support that they have a 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and of course once again 100 nights risk-free free shipping it's one of the reasons why it's been picked the number one mattress by gq wired magazine and it's recommended by all kinds of fancy people, but you can just take my word for it. It's a dope mattress. So once again, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for the listeners. Go to helixsleep.com amp to take advantage of the offer. Once again, helixsleep.com amp. And lastly, we have on it, and I want to spend this time talking about the four different types of alpha brain that Onnit is currently offering. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, alpha brain was Onnit's flagship. It was the revolutionary nootropic formula tested twice in double-blind clinical trials and shown to be effective in helping improve focus and general cognitive function. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's studying or podcasting, it's something that you can put in your tool belt to help elevate your consciousness. But now we have four different iterations. And of course, there's the original capsuled alpha brain. And one of the advantages that I love about the original formula is the inclusion of cat's claw. Cat's claw 
is really long-term, highly neuroprotective. And so it's a very well-rounded brain formula. And then there's the instantized version, which comes in these little packets that are delicious that you can mix in water. Now, I typically bring those when I travel, and you have the option. You can either drink it fast and get the full dose of original alpha brain immediately, or drink it slow if you have a longer, more drawn-out day where you want to spread the effects out over an hour, two hours, just mix it in your water bottle. And again, it tastes awesome. So that's also an advantage. Then there's the alpha brain ready to drink shots. And you just rip the cap and drink the alpha brain. And it has a slight modification to the formula in that it includes a little bit of caffeine. And caffeine and alpha brain pair brilliantly together. So this is going to pick up your energy as well as giving you the cholinergic boost that Alpha Brain is known for. And then there's the Cadillac, which is Alpha Brain Black Label. Alpha Brain Black Label has a couple different advantages. One is a full dose of mecunipurians, which increases and up-levels the availability of dopamine in the brain, which is great for modulating your mood into a much more positive state. Then there's a full, full dose of phosphatidylserine, which has a host of different benefits. Of course, there's the nutritional mushroom lion's mane and a variety of different ingredients that we put together. It took us over 10 years to develop a formula that was worthy of carrying the Alpha Brain name and being significantly different. And we did it with Alpha Brain Black Label. So that's a brief explanation of the four different types of Alpha Brain. So if you're interested, check it out. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on all of the different alpha brains. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Vandana Shiva. Vandana, good to see you. Hey, good to see you, Aubrey. Yeah, absolutely. So what is going on in India right now? What's going on? Well, very untimely rains. We should by now be harvesting crops. They should be golden in the fields. And the rains don't stop. It's, you know, October. October should be bright, sunny. Uh, the sun should be sunny. The ground yeah. should be sunny. Uh, so climate havoc everywhere, everywhere, with very mm. high costs to agriculture. Yeah. There's um there's been some talk that you know there should be kind of a a price to be paid for what people assume are the culprits of this type of climate change that's creating these type of rains and um it seems like a, a kind of like a, a measure that's not actually going to be that effective but I, but you can feel people's anger towards you know what they what they feel to be the cause of of all of this climate change. You know what are what are your thoughts on you know well, what you know, this I've, what this landscape is? I've been an ecologist, an ecological activist for five decades, and in part of that period from ninety two, we got in international environmental laws. We got the Convention on Biological Diversity. We got the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and most importantly, we got two principles that have been used in law all over the world the polluter should pay mm -hmm. if harm is done the cost should be borne by those who cause the harm so we know the data is so clear now you know the one percent are responsible for 50 percent you know on on a planet with more than seven billion people a one percent 
is destroying the climate. And then worse, they are trying to find clever ways to make money out of the disaster they have caused. For example, geoengineering, intentionally destroying the climate, blocking the sun called solar geoengineering, as if the sun is the problem. Sun is the blessing. We have life on earth because of the sun. The sun is not the problem. Pollution is the problem. And, you know, just my country, one year, the cost of climate havoc is $85 billion. Mm. And the entire UN fund for the whole world is supposed to be $100 billion and they haven't even managed to collect that. So I think you are so right. People's basically gut reaction is so right that those who have caused the pollution that is driving climate havoc, I don't use the word climate change because it's too smooth, you know, climate chaos, climate havoc, climate catastrophe is what we are living through. Uh, And we know the actors, we know the corporations who are responsible, we know the oil companies, we know the fossil fuel based chemical companies, fertilizer, you know, more than 1.1 billion uh, tons of emissions. 50% of the damage to the world is from the same system that is damaging our health, yeah, an industrial food and agriculture system, an industrial globalized system. So, Yes, I mean, justice means those who cause the harm should compensate those who are impacted by that harm. That's what the polluter pays principle is. It was part of the climate treaty. It's been forgotten. It should be resurrected. And that's Mm -hmm. what the new democracy movements have to be about. You know, Mm -hmm. after all, in the days of slavery, when, you know, the British found they could destroy India's textiles and make textiles in Manchester and Lancashire, but they had to get raw material. And for that, they had to capture the lands of America. They had to capture people in Africa to, make me, to do the cotton picking. And, and in those days, I am sure it would have felt like there will never be end to slavery. But we put an end to slavery, you know, mm. the abolition movement. We need today an abolition movement in, in terms of dealing with the new criminals of our times. The criminals who are putting life to the edge, criminals who are destroying the ecological processes of the earth, which she has evolved over billions of years, four billion years. She created the infrastructure to cool the planet, to make life livable for human species. From 290 degrees, she brought down the temperature to 13 degrees. We need to respect again the laws of the earth, the laws of ecology, and this is what people are feeling in their guts, you know. They are not ready for the fake solutions that will be, you know, the net zero, um, the lab food, agriculture for carbohydrates and proteins for lab food. No, we are connected to the earth through the food we eat. And mm-hmm. how we grow our food decides whether it will contribute to climate havoc or be a solution. And ecological agriculture, which recycles carbon and makes uh, both the soil and the biodiversity carbon rich that is the solution yeah what would you say to those people who are trying to steal man the other side of the argument and the other side of the argument would be listen there's been climate havoc forever 
you know, things happen, you know, monsoons last longer or shorter, you know, earthquakes, fires, disasters, there's climate havoc. We live in a tumultuous and chaotic, you know, natural biome. And this has always happened. It just seems to be correlated right now. And we're trying to correlate it to that. So that's one side of the argument. And then the other side of the argument is like, well, if we stop producing energy, and then people will not have enough energy to go about their daily lives, to support themselves, to actually make a living, to to live life in accordance. And if we stop these agricultural practices, then people will starve. You know, so those those would be the two steel manned arguments from the other side. And I just I'm not saying that that's my argument. I'm just saying like if I'm going to steel man those arguments. So how would you respond to both of those two the, things? The first is. You know, the earth through her biosphere, evolving the microbes and the plants that through photosynthesis could fix the atmospheric carbon dioxide, turn it into molecules of life, the food we eat, the oxygen, the life that we breathe. Uh, That is what has both created the climate and maintained it. And that's a, a system that has not just evolved over millennia, but it hasn't been in balance till literally two centuries ago when we started to use fossil fuels and broke broke the cycles. They broke the capacity of the biosphere to recycle because we abandoned the biosphere and we went into the dead, fossilized living material that the earth has fossilized over 600 million years. So as debates and modeling, you can have any amount of debates. But I have witnessed in my country, and we have lived on our farm this year, three rounds of flooding. We've never had flooding on our farm. We're in a mountain. Yeah? And we've had good monsoon, heavy monsoon, but never the levels of extreme events um, that we are witnessing now. We are in the Bay of Bengal, in you know, Orissa, Bengal. We've had cyclones but never the kind of cyclones we are witnessing now. The super cyclone of 1999, 300 miles per hour, killed thousands of people. And that's where the seeds that we had saved, of salt-tolerant seeds and the seed banks that Navdani has created, they allowed agriculture to bounce back. And these are our sources of resilience. So for those who say this is just nature's pattern, they are insulting nature. They are insulting God. Gaia has more orderly patterns. And there's a very beautiful, you know, in India, we call the climate system and the weather patterns Rita, you know, the Ritu. And Ritu is derived from the word Rita, the order. Mm. Yeah? Rita, the right order, the right order. And we used to, you know, when I talk to old peasants in remote villages, they tell me we used to have six, eight predictable seasons. We could predict exactly when the monsoon will come. We could predict exactly when the monsoon will go. We knew exactly when the summer would start shifting into the monsoon. We knew when the spring would come and when the autumn would come. These seasons have just disappeared. There's nothing like a spring. So I do not accept that, you know, I mean, I think the, the illusion the colonial illusion that nature is disorderly and it's mm-hmm. man and superiority that puts nature in order. I think mm. that's an illusion we really must say. We must start yeah, becoming yeah. more humble in our context 
of being part of nature, observing nature much more closely and seeing the patterns of a tiny little seed growing into a plant and giving you thousands of seeds. That's the observation I do. That's the practice I do. And for those who, who think that the 200 years of a very, very wasteful, pollution-creating, entropy-creating industrial age has created a better standard of living. And oh my gosh, what will we do if we don't have so much gas and so much oil and so much um, uh, coal? Well, you know, I've lived in, in India where we were not driven by fossil fuels and it was a better life. It was a better life because there was more community. It was a better life because we were plastic free. I've seen plastic invade my country, you know, plastic and petrochemicals and agrochemicals are the poisoning of the world. And anyone who thinks these are gifts should just watch the mountains or waste in which we are drowning. You know, are people doing better by drinking Coca-Cola? You know, I worked with women who fought Coca-Cola. I had no idea. I knew the drink was bad. It never tasted good to me. But I didn't know it had such a heavy ecological cost till a group of women invited me in 2002 to celebrate Earth Day in a remote village because they were fighting Coca-Cola. So I went more from inquisitiveness and I said, how could it be that a soft drink company could cause so much havoc? 1.5 million liters per day. Mm-hmm. And the women fought and I supported them and the Coca-Cola plant was shut down. But people forget that Coca-Cola doesn't manufacture water. You know, when they, they put the Kinley bottle, they say manufactured by. No, water is not a manufacturer. Seed is not a manufacturer. Life <laughs> is not a manufacturer. Just putting more petrol and oil in the plastic bottle and using oil to mine the water basically ends up that we are drinking oil and making ourselves sick with diabetes and obesity. So I, I really do feel, you know, we are in such a precarious moment that every sensible human being, every thoughtful human being should shed the brainwashing that has brought us to this brink and start observing, living, experiencing much more intimately what's going on. Beautifully said. And and I think there's no one that can argue this gnawing, growing sense that something is not quite right and that what we're doing is ultimately not sustainable. And I think a lot of times you can get lost in the arguments of this thing or that thing and this model versus that model. But at the core of it, we all feel and we all know that what we're doing is unsustainable. Something must change and that everything we're doing collectively on the vector, on the telos of how it's evolving is actually not making us any happier. You know, we, we, we have to acknowledge that. And, and those things become kind of inarguable like, cause we just know, we just know it and whatever models and whatever things there are, we sure you can maybe debate this thing or that thing, but fundamentally we know that we have to shift and we have to shift in a meaningful way. And then ask that shift have to come from our consciousness, our hearts, our awareness, our care for each other. It has to be a kind of universal shift. Absolutely. Aubrey. I've just done a book uh, published in Italy called from greed to care. Um, because the publishers wanted me to reflect on on the crisis 
you know, in which all of us spent two years. And, and those two years showed very clearly that caring is not a luxury. It's the only economy that makes life possible and li- worth living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Uh, what, what was it? I haven't got a chance on my podcast. What was happening with the farmer's strike in, in India? To walk, walk us through that from your perspective, being obviously so close to the ecology and so close to the Indian people. You know, what did you see happening there? Yeah, I've also been very close to the farmer's movement. Um, you know, the farmer's movement grew in India as a result of the costs of the Green Revolution. You know, soils dying, water disappearing, poisons everywhere, and agriculture turned non-viable, where the costs of production shoot up high. And what you get for what you produce never increases, it keeps falling. And then, you know, 1987, I was invited to a meeting on the new biotechnologies. It was called Laws of Life. And that's where the chemical industry first laid out their plan on every seed being a genetically modified seed because they wanted to take a patent on seed so that they could collect royalties from the farmers. I heard them. We started to look out for the GATT agreement, which became the World Trade Organization. And I traveled the length and the breadth of the country to meet farmers' movements, to inform them about what's coming, because there is no way they'd have got to know till it had happened. So we built an amazing movement. We brought together the regional movements because agriculture was a regional subject till that time. And globalization made it a national system. So we united all these broken, fragmented groups and they became a big farmers' movement. 1991 is when the GATT agreement uh, leaked. It was called the Dunkel Draft Text because Dunkel was the director general of, uh, of the GATT at that time. But uh, Dunkel Draft Text, as you will notice, abbreviates to DDT. So we called it the DDT Text that is going to totally destroy farming. And we organized this big rally of 500,000 to say food and agriculture is too important for every society to be left, to be left to free trade, corporate greed. And it it was becoming clear that, you know, four or five corporations would do the trading led by Cargill, who wrote for the United States, negotiated the agriculture agreement of WTO, the intellectual property agreement, drafted, and they confessed that they wrote it, Monsanto, that we will own the seed. We are the inventors of seed. And then the junk food industry, the Pepsis and the Cokes and the Nestles, wrote the sanitary and phytosanitary agreement to destroy real food and force industrial ultra-processed food that has spread disease. So in 91, the World Bank also imposed a structural adjustment on India, having tied us in debt for chemical farming called the Green Revolution. And among the conditionalities they had is we should get rid of a law that ensures prices of essential things never rise too high and no one can hoard and no one can have stockpiling. That Trade should stay small, decentralized, and regulated for, with a fair price for the growers and producers and a fair price for the eaters. This is called the Essential Commodities Act. We also created systems where the farmers and the small traders to work together in what are called uh, agricultural markets. Um, so farmers had rights, traders had rights. No trader could have more than a certain amount of grain. 
and together they fixed the price. This was called the Agricultural Produce Marketing Cooperative Act. Third, we never had corporations in agriculture because agriculture is not by accident the prime activity of most Indians, but we have defined ourselves as an agrarian civilization, you know, that taking care of the soil, taking care of Mother Earth is the most evolved way of being human. We fought the East India Company on issues of land and bread. We fought the British. We got freedom from British colonialism after they left us with the famines and extracted rents and transferred from India to England $45 trillion. So these laws, they were trying to put force from 91 onwards. But we had a very vibrant parliament. And, and you know, in, at that point, the WTO had not dismembered our democracy as it is dismembering it everywhere. So what happened is every time these laws would come to parliament, um, they would be rejected. Mm-hmm. 91 onwards. 2020, in the peak of the lockdown, and peak of the corona shutdown, they were brought in as an ordinance. And, and most of the farmers who led the protest that lasted 14 months You know, for me, it was very touching because they were sons of farmers I have worked with in the 90s. Mm. Yeah, they were the next generation. And and they were fighting these three laws because they said corporate agriculture will wipe wipe out of the small farmer. And we don't want to be serfs on other people's land. Yeah, we want to be proud producers of food. We have a beautiful word for it, Annadata, the ones who gives you food, you know, and... um, and the, the farmers of India are small, again, by policy, and the small farmers are proud people. And even though they, between globalization and the Green Revolution, they paid a very heavy price. But it was for me very, very inspiring to watch hundreds of thousands of farmers gathered in total harmony and discipline. They didn't know each other. No one mm. planned it for them. This is the ultimate self-organization that comes together in coherence. They came from different parts of the country. They stayed together in tents. They cooked food for each other, including men, you know, because India's image is very patriarchal. The men were making chapatis to feed each other. And most importantly, they were remembering. (laughs) Across their protests were the history the history of all the agrarian revolts we have had in India. And and they were, in a way, continuing the freedom of the farmer and food freedom in our times of corporate globalization. So eventually the prime minister had to withdraw these laws. I mean, he would not do anything. I think it's the first time he stepped back. First time. And it's the small peasants with their resilience who made him remember what democracy is about. It's such a, such a powerful story that, uh, and so, and so redeeming that it worked, you know, that the little, the everybody self-organizing the people bringing their power back, claiming something, not as one individual attacking one individual, but as a group in coherence, working together, loving each other, supporting each other, and then changing you know, the giants and the policies of these massive forces. And Aubrey, the the beauty was no one was giving them speeches. 
but they were overcoming religious differences which the political system is feeding on. Mm. You know, the women and men were sitting together. Women were giving speeches. Women were organizing. So I think, you know, the dominant system constantly tries to divide us. Yeah? It, it cannot exist without a divide and rule policy. And people's yeah. movements can only get strong when they transcend the artificially created divisions. It seems like the, <laughs> the, the thing that gives me hope is that the more insane the policies that come down from these top-down, you know, corporatist, the corporatocracy that, that masquerades as a democracy, but really it's all captured by corporate interests. And whether it's big agriculture or big war or big medicine or whatever, big pharma, all of, all of these different aspects, they end up capturing the politicians. So it's really, they really just become puppets for a much bigger force that's behind them. And as that increases and gets more and more crazy and more you know, more destructive, then that's when people start to overcome their differences or at least have the opportunity to. And, uh, and that's what gives me hope. It's like the more, the more that those top-down forces press, the more likely people are to respond and come together and set aside their differences. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I think, I think the system based on greed, corporate rule, would never have survived if they hadn't made us support the structure through consumerism. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to become consumers in order to have corporate rule. And part of what we have to do is, you know, become citizens again, become earth citizens again, know what enough is about and through it get satisfaction and through it get happiness because, you know, I've seen billboards come up in my country, happiness for sale. Happiness can't be sold. And the more you try and buy happiness in the supermarket and the malls, the more it runs away because uh, new clothing will not bring you happiness and chasing the next pair of throwaway shoes won't bring you happiness. The throwaway culture, throwing away precious earth resources, throwing away precious human beings. To me, that throwaway culture is the violence of mm. this system. And the non-violence is living with deep respect for all life on earth and deep respect for every human being. No one is an outcast. No, mm -hmm. no one is disposable. Yeah, yeah, beautifully said. What, what, from your perspective, was going on with some of the kind of seemingly insidious and somewhat coerced vaccine policies that were also that also have been happening in India where it feels like uh different corporations and different special interests have decided to use Indian population as test subjects for different vaccination policies well you know my sister's a medical doctor she's an md in medicine and has become the leading voice over the years on um, on trying to regulate Big Pharma for hazardous drugs that they dump on us, for untested vaccines that are dumped on us. And there's so many cases, especially with Bill Gates funding, 
of of young women who were never informed that they were part of a clinical trial and many died and that case actually was a very successful case built by a group of doctors who then supported the victims um so india has both been at the heart of you know we we are both a very hugely successful scientific community you know i i did research on how we were the, we are the third biggest scientific community of the world and it's not an accident i mean look at the fact that all of silicon valley is being run by indians um and i think part of it is you know our our training in in the mathematics system you know long before modern mathematics is has facilitated the young people from just slipping into the new it sector you know the big pharma and big poison in agriculture are actually the same players they're not different hmm. buyer people think of it as a aspirin company when they bought monsanto but buyer's first product you know one one of their produce was heroin when you look at heroin addiction you wouldn't imagine it's buyer and and buyer was among it was part of the ig farben and part of mobe during hitler's germany monsanto buyer had had um, a partnership and buyers of course also a big pharmaceutical giant so the chemicals and the glyphosate give you cancer and then the buyers have the patented cancer drug and each each circle of poison creates new possibilities for big pharma and i think one of the big issues um, that at least for india is becoming so clear is we have had an explosion you know of of disasters i started to look at agriculture not because it was my field my field was physics my field was quantum theory i started to look at agriculture in 84 when the land of punjab which is where i done my msc in particle physics it erupted in violence thousands were killed and that same year in 84 a city called bhopal had a pesticide leak and thousands were killed and i'm saying at the end of the year why on earth are we doing agriculture in a way that kills people where did these chemicals come from so i when and and i said what is this thing called the green revolution and of course like you were saying the story is oh my gosh without chemicals people will starve people are starving because of chemicals people are dying because of chemicals every year 200000 deaths because of pesticide poisoning not a trivial number india has lost 400000 farmers because of debt driven suicide what was this debt for seeds and chemicals and this connection between big poison and big pharma and the connection between the way poisons are imposed on people and the cancer epidemics we are living through on the one hand and on the other for the rest the ultra processed food that is creating chronic diseases that are much bigger in terms of cost than the economy of of agriculture so so the shadow of agri we have a book called wealth parika and health we have another book called health but health parika we because i save seeds we promote organic biodiverse farming and then we we worked out how much does it produce when you don't look at the monoculture you know 
a monoculture commodity, of course, more will be produced in a monoculture commodity of a monoculture. But we have to eat different things. And when we cultivate diversity and you measure nutrition, every acre gives you far more food and nutrition and health by not using chemicals and growing monocultures. Mm -hmm. And then our work has shown that farmers who, who leave the chemical treadmill, who reclaim their seed sovereignty, who reclaim their knowledge of farming without chemicals, who reclaim the market and say, we will shape the market. The market will not push us to extinction. They're earning much, much more. And the shadow of environmental disasters, suicide, and the chronic disease epidemic is a, at least, you know, for us, it's, it's a bigger shadow than the formal GDP, which anyway is not a very me meaningful number. That's why the lovely country of Bhutan, north of us, you know, the former prime minister had called me and said they, they gave up gross domestic product and gross national product. They said growth means nothing because, mm. the, you know, they saw unhappy people with growth. They said, we are going to maximize happiness. Mm. So they measure gross national happiness. Their planning is done on the basis of happiness, not on the basis of growth. And one little country can do it. Surely we can make this shift everywhere. Individually, that's what we should be thinking every moment. What is more satisfying? What allows me to spread joy around me? Rather than constantly, you know, being pushed on the money treadmill and everyone feeling so insecure because, you know, they pay you a little bit and then they make everything cost double and triple. I mean, look at this year's cost of living crisis. No one can afford to live, but everyone has a right to live. So this idea that you've got to buy your life is a fake idea. It's an immoral idea and it should be put aside. And, you know, all beings have a right to live. All human beings have a right to live. And so real democracy society is being designed in a way that people are living living with well-being, living with satisfaction, living in community, living in healthy ways with less. And both my activism and my research and my cultural experience tells me that actually the less resources you exploit, the more there is for everyone. And therefore, everyone is happier. The more you steal the water from the ground like Coca-Cola or steal the water from a river for intensive irrigation, to, uh, to just dissolve chemicals, well, there's disasters everywhere. There's disasters for, for the plants, there's disasters for the crops, there's disaster for animals, and there's disaster for the smaller farmers for whom no water is left. So, you know, taking less means sharing more. Mm. Yeah, well said. Uh, our friend Charles Eisenstein went recently went to uh, Kansas and he wrote an article about what's happening in the heartland. And it seems like in our country as well, we're experiencing many of the same things that you're talking about in India, where there's starting to be the seeds of uh, intellectual consciousness revolution, a heart-led re you know, revolution in the heartland where people are saying this way of monocropping and you know, spraying all of these chemicals and petrochemicals and everything on the ground like it's making the soil less and less workable the yields are going down we're not able to actually live and we know we know in our body that we're actually doing the thing contrary to all of the values that our grandfathers and their fathers and everyone had held which is the pride at being a farmer i mean i think mm -hmm. there is a great pride 
in that. And, and that's all starting to slip away. And, and these movements are so necessary, not only to restore the soil, but restore the soil of people's care and love and self-respect and dignity, you know? And this is why I think there's all of these ideas of these, this new top-down world where the government just gives you a little money and then the machine produces enough. But if people don't have the dignity to feel like they're contributing to themselves, their family, their fellow man, it's never going to work. You know, the the deep gnawing pain and lack of purpose that that will cause will completely erode uh, any sense of happiness that we have. So these movements are vital, not only for the earth, but for the sustenance of, of human, you know, joy. Yeah, you know, being human, you know, what is being, being human. human? What is being human? Is being human the ideas that those who kind of follow a very outmoded, obsolete, Descartes idea that, you know, um, we are just minds and not bodies. And now we're thinking, oh, and the mind of the computer is superior to my mind. And then, therefore, I must dissolve my identity and give up. And, of course, to create a superior human race. That's what Bacon was talking about. Yeah, A superior race of supermen who will control the rest. Well, that's what some people would like to see in the world. And they really are thinking. I mean, I remember Zuckerberg's talk at Harvard. He said 99% people will be useless. Well, in your world, Mr. Zuckerberg, <laughs> in the real world, every person can contribute, does contribute. And, and, you know, this monoculture of the mind that I've talked about, it's not just about how we farm and how we, we practice fisheries or how we grow our forests as monoculture plantations, but monoculture of the mind is also imposition of a uniformity on, on, on the diversity of society. And to say you can only be this, and even this you can only be for one year, because then you've got to scale up to fit into the next generation of the machine. And, and you know, but, you know when, the, when the 1% says 99% of you are useless, it's time for the 99% to say, actually, your ideas are quite useless for us. We will create nicer ones that are more mm. generous, that are more, have more solidarity and have more potential for bringing mm. happiness. How is, how is the dissemination of this consciousness happening in India? I mean, are people, I mean, we think about it now. We're like, all right, well, people are listening to podcasts. They're finding information. But what's happening on the ground? How is this movement happening in India amongst the people? And, and maybe we can extrapolate how this could happen in the world. Obviously, there is a lot of technology, and I'm sure it's helpful. But what are the, what are the ways that this, these ideas are actually rippling outward? So, you know, ever since colonialism and even worse, since globalization, you know, they've always been, there are two Indias, very different. One deeply integrated into the monoculture world and the other deeply rooted. So I work in the rooted world. I work with women. I work with farmers. We save seeds, but we are all not just saving seeds for an agriculture of freedom. Because, you know, as Kissinger had said, 
You control food, you control society, you know, you control arms, you control governments. And I said, well, when they want to control seed, you control life on earth. And therefore, seed freedom, of course, is the basis of food freedom. But what's growing so beautifully, particularly in the last few years, and especially in the last two years of lockdown, is women started to remember mm. things they had forgotten. Healing plants that give you immunity. They treated themselves. No fear of COVID. We used to drink this as a child. These three herbs put together in this kara. And more importantly, because we worked on, you know, on, on local economies, seed sovereignty, food seed sovereignty, that's what the women are practicing. And when the supply chains collapsed, it's these circles of living economies that sustains society. How does it spread? It basically spreads, you know, I, you know, I think everyone these days is on this thing called WhatsApp. I'm not on it. But even in the villages, <laughs> because everything has been connected in India to your having yeah. a phone, you know. You can't get your food without the phone. You can't send your child to school. You can't go to the bank without the phone. So everyone has a phone. And everyone now is chatting away all the time. So one little message is sent and it spreads. Mm. Not through podcasts and not through YouTube, but through this amazing ability of, of local communities to take the part of the technological empire that serves them. Mm. It's one of the things that, you know, I, I read about. And again, I don't know the details because I haven't talked to anybody like you who's been on the ground and experienced it. All I'm getting is, and I'm very skeptical of what gets filtered to us through mainstream media, right? Like, I think we've seen that mainstream media is also captured by corporate interests or political interests, which are in turn captured by corporate interests. So it's very difficult to trust mainstream media about whatever is happening. But it seems that in Iran, that actually one of the moves that the government made to kind of try to squash the revolution that's happening there for women's rights was to try and shut down all forms of communication like WhatsApp and Instagram and Twitter and whatever else they were trying, whatever else they could. Because I think they realized that if people can communicate with each other, then that's what's going to give the people power. And if they can shut that down, you know, then they can maintain control. But that's an absolutely entirely despotic, tyrannical move, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, people won't tolerate. Ultimately, it'll just fuel the revolution even more because people will realize the, the deep corruption and, uh, and oppressive violence of mm -hmm. preventing people from even communicating with each other. Yeah. But of course, you know, I think very often, I mean, and, and it's true for the COVID years, you know, one is total totalitarian shutdown of communication systems. The other is that very subtle censorship so that all you get is fakeness. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the more sophisticated places, they never shut down straight away. They sh just shut down one voice. And, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or one kind of voice, or one set of voices, and only one voice. I mean, I think the mainstream media is a big part of the problem. And, you know, I, I've done two books on Mr. Gates, 
Uh, one is philanthropic capitalism, and the other was the book that made me learn where the world was going, called Oneness Versus One Percent. And of course, we are chatting because Chelsea Green has just brought to the United States my movement biography. It's not my autobiography. It's my biography of movements over five decades of my life, and it's called Terra Viva, my life in a biodiversity of movements, and and I have lived through enough. You know, when I started with the Chipko movement, there was nothing like international media, you know, um, and we were used to that. <laughs> we were used to the fact that big things can happen and they'll never be reported. Then there was a period of internationalism, where real news from remote places, and to the extent that when I was starting to save seeds, I called someone I came to know who had started the seed bank in Nicaragua, and I said, you know, I don't know how to save seeds. I have to do it, but come and teach me. And then I sent him off to the villages, and he went to the villages. Said, "I've come. Vandana Shiva has sent me. I'm so and so from Nicaragua." Everyone in the remote villages, high mountains, knew about the Sandinistas, knew about Nicaragua, knew about the revolution. Now these are pre-globalization days where we were much more international, because there was no filtering happen. Then comes globalization and the more recent hyper-globalization. Basically, you never get real news about any place. Yeah? Yeah. And I'll give you my own example. So Monsanto came in with the BT cotton. It came in illegally. I'd been part of writing international national laws on biosafety. When I found that they were in, in India illegally, I sued them. But then I also started to monitor what was happening. Suicide started. I started to do reports. And, and of course, it started to come on Indian media. And then the international media was mobilized, not the mainstream as much as the bot. You know, that's why it's such a pleasure to talk to you, Aubrey, because it's such a pleasure to talk to a free mind, you know, mm. rather than a paid fake news operator and, uh, or a fake uh, spin uh, operator. And what's very encouraging is those numbers actually are not very big, you know, whether it's tobacco or nuclear or GMOs, it's the same people, you know, yeah. they're just available, yeah, they're available for hire, now attack yeah, the science, yeah. now go attack this person, so, yeah, they're, they're, like, merc they're like mercenaries that are, they are total are... mercenaries, they're total mercenaries, yeah. and I've kind of, you know, they've tried to attack, each of them has tried to attack me, and, that's, uh, a, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a badge of honor, Vandana, <laughs> that's a badge of honor, <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think I think big media today is so much part of big money that we need decentralized media to regenerate democracy. Yeah. Tell me about Bill Gates. You know, I think there's uh, there's a lot of people who have a lot of strong opinions about about Mr. Gates and. Uh, there's I've seen some things that I think are highly questionable. I mean, whether he's trying to participate in releasing GMO mosquitoes, which seems like a horrible idea to me. I don't know. It's I don't know enough about GMO. No, no, he's financing it for sure. He's yeah, financing so that seems like mosquitoes. that seems like a terrible idea. It seems actually very you know what he was doing during COVID seemed highly questionable. But I always I don't until I really know something and I and I have a gnosis of something. I always reserve some, you know, reserve some judgment, but it seems like you've really been diving deep in this 
And so, so tell me, what is the, what do you, what, from your perspective, what, what's this man up to? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you about, you know, three levels at which I've had to cross paths with him. So, you know, the World Economic Forum had designed globalization and then the Seattle movement happened and WTO was shut down. So they tried to revise their, you know, their spin. And they started to call people like me. Um, and I remember one of the World Economic Forum meetings was in Melbourne. And I've written about it in my book, Terra Mar Viva. Protests were huge. I was watching, walking with the protests. And then at a certain point, you know, I, I told the people in the march, I said, you know, that I have an invitation to speak inside and the Bill Gates. And if you think it's worth it, I will go in. Otherwise, I'll keep marching with you. So quickly, they made a declaration. They said, no, 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 go and present this. So I went in. And I went in from the streets. Bill Gates couldn't arrive from the streets because there was a total blockade. So he had to fly in on a helicopter. Mm -hmm. And here I was talking about what the people are saying. I was talking about what women in my land are saying. And all he went on repeating ad nauseum was, there's a digital divide. There's a digital divide. There's a digital divide. As if life and death depends on having a gadget. Um, was getting a Microsoft program. The next was the time when he. So wait, I'm just to, just to get just just to get this clear. You're you were bringing you know issues that that the people had brought forth. What was what was in the what were you trying to accomplish by meeting with him first? Just so I understand. No, I wasn't meeting with him. I, uh -huh. He and I were addressing the World Economic Forum. Got it. I wouldn't go meeting him now. No, we were just okay. both invited and we were on this, you know, we were both speakers. Part of the same, yeah, part of the same speaker Yeah, yeah, network. the two of us were speakers, yeah. And yeah. Uh, then I had done the book on the Green Revolution and, you know, known how, how, how deadly it is for the earth and for farmers. And then he started to push the Green Revolution in Africa, the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. And... I went to Africa many times. The people of Africa rejected it, said, take it back, don't push it. Scientists of the world... What is the Green Revolution? Explain that for people the, who don't the know. The Green Revolution is just chemical farming imposed on the world with a very fake idea of greenness. Uh, of course, there was no green movement in the 60s. The green movement only came much later. The word green was different from red. There was a red revolution in China. And so to, to create an, a, a different path... Of based on com commercialization through chemicals and commodification, the you know the U.S., the World Bank all joined hands, and the Rockefeller Foundation all joined hands, and first introduced the Green Revolution in India, and that's what ruined Punjab. And even today, like I said, it's it's the grandchildren of those who suffered first who are still you know Punjab is one of the lands with the highest level of suicide. Um, so the Green Revolution in India has had high costs. Well, he just wanted to take, he called it the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. It, it abbreviates to be Agra. And I said, this Agra will not create a Taj Mahal. You know? This Agra is going to be very, very serious. And it already has had huge costs. You know, the yields are lower, worse. You know, they're selling more fertilizers, but arid areas can be devastated with fertilizers. Yeah. The third 
time, I, you know, so and I just realized to, just that- to add just to add one thing to that, it seems like for people to understand the green revolution is about green is yes, plants, but it's in this case, it's about money. And our money it's is green. Money. Our money it's is green, green here revolution. in the US. And that's the that's the fucking irony is really what yeah. they're talking about. When they say green revolution, they're talking about exactly. greenbacks, exactly. American, exactly. American dollars. Yeah. yeah. So the third time around, you know, you know, and I realized then that no matter what, how much you movements, hundreds of thousands of signatures from Africa, movements from around the world, he doesn't care. He doesn't listen. You know, it's he doesn't have the capacity to take feedback. Is that because that. you think do you do you think that's because he just thinks he's smarter than everybody and that he's got it all figured out? I think part of it is that, and the part of it is, even though he pretends to be, you know, only a nerd, he's always looking for a way to make money. After all that, he cheated everyone to make Microsoft, you know. He cheated <laughs> his own partners, and he, yeah. he, he, he patented the basic program that college professors had written, you know, and he's the inventor. He's the inventor of everything. And he is today's biopirate, bio you know. And this is what I've written about. So in nine, 2015... President Obama sadly had killed the legally binding climate treaty in Copenhagen. And uh, when, by the time people met in Paris, there was nothing like a legally binding framework. It was now voluntary commitments. Yeah, we'll do this. And, we, and it wasn't adding up. But uh, having attended so many of these meetings since 92 and before 92 in the prep forms, I could not believe that Mr. Gates was basically giving all the directions. Mm. He was on the stage with heads of state. Never seen that before. I said, since when did billionaires were not elected, not only stand equal to, but superior to people who've been elected? So I started to look, and my lovely son helped me. Uh, We started to look at, you know, how's money really working? Where are the decisions taking place? So we wrote the book called Oneness Versus 1%. And, and, you know, that the, basically what had happened very quickly was globalization and deregulation had allowed wealth to be so concentrated. And Mr. Gates had managed for the first WTO meeting to get total freedom from any taxation on information technologies, you know, in the movement mm. of information. So if Microsoft was paying for all their back and forth, they'd have had to pay lots of taxes. They made so much money, he got so rich because of the deregulation of globalization. And the first WTO ministerial in Singapore is where those rules were written. But very fast, he started then from 2015, I watched him take over the climate discussion. Just before that, he'd taken over the agriculture discussion. He's now talking of one agriculture for the whole world, which he'll control. He is the biggest farmland owner of America, you know. The biggest farmland owner of America is Mr. Microsoft because he is trying to now push control over agriculture through surveillance, through digitalization, and of course, through genetic engineering. Every, every GMO that we questioned because it was an inferior version, you know, golden rice for uh, more vitamin A. No, we had so many alternatives of vitamin A. Mm. The carrot itself, from where carotene comes. So we said this is a very inferior technology because all we needed biodiversity. He resurrected this failed project and is financing it and pushing it through deregulation in Philippines, trying to spread it to the world. 
in 2011, we stopped the BT aubergine in India. There were seven public hearings through various parts of the country. Everyone said, we don't need this. BT cotton has already destroyed agriculture. We, you know, we threw it out through a democratic debate. Mr. Gates takes it to Bangladesh. So every failed technology rejected by science, rejected by democracy, has been picked up by his money. Another big issue about Bill Gates that most people don't know, you know, all public institutions are suffering because the public support system is being made to collapse. So these seed banks that were put together by the World Bank in the Green Revolution time, because they needed all the rice diversity, they needed all the wheat diversity, they needed all the barley diversity. These seed banks, now Mr. Gates is the driver. He gives tiny bits of funding and then he takes control. All the seeds of the world, including the seed, they call it the Doomsday Vault in Svalbard. He's the big funder of the Svalbard gene bank. So he's controlling seed, he's trying to control agriculture. Of course, he's the biggest funder for WHO, um, education, media. I mean, just look at what big media does he not fund. So when you ask me about Mr. Gates, and here, sitting in front of me, is his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And it's really a book on how to create more climate disasters mm. based on, you know, he says it's the four stomachs of the cow that are the problem. No, it's the bad feed and putting cows in factories. That's the problem. Not the cow, mm. not the four stomachs. You know, Herbie Ward needs four stomachs. Or saying, you know, I love fertilizers at a time where we know they're the biggest problem in terms of emissions of nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more damaging to the climate than carbon dioxide. Here's Mr. Gates showing off him, you know, I love fertilizers. I'm happier than I look standing in front of a fertilizer factory. So he's the one who invented net zero. It's all in his book. He wrote this just before the Glasgow summit. Every decision, every language, the vocabulary that came out of the official UN summit is already here. The food summit used to be in FAO, uh, in Rome, where the FAO is. Last year, it was taken by Gates to New York. Instead of being, you know, countries, it was now corporations. And the head was Mr. Gates's Alliance for the Green Revolution uh, in Africa chief. So... I think, you know, the, the UN system is, is totally eroded by his maneuvers. Mm. And governments, he just walks in. He just walks in and gives a little, you know, here's a million. And then he takes 20 million. Hmm. Well, I mean, this, hearing that, it all makes, you know, it all... It all makes sense based on everything I've I've also heard about the moves that he's making. It doesn't seem like anything you're saying is debatable. This is not this is just really what he's doing. And yeah, yeah. I guess I guess then then the question that comes to my mind, which is not even an important question to ask, it's almost rhetorical, is does he really think that he's doing good, actually, or does he know that he's become a Bond villain and he's just happy to be a villain in this case you know it's like at some point does he have that such little self-awareness and is his shadow so great that he really thinks he's doing the best that he could 
And in that case, is potentially redeemable, or is he just like, fuck it, I'm going to take the whole world? I think he's basically so ignorant about how the world works, and he is so arrogant about his pattern of how it should work, that he has no time for learning, he's got no time for listening. And, and I don't think all the ideas come from his head. I think, you know, every perverse power, the, the green of money, you know, the green of the dollar, uh, they, they use him. And, uh, and they, they really thought that, you know, his, you know, just like the image of Rockefeller was changed, you know, and then the Rockefeller became a philanthropist, uh, you know, a makeover of Bill Gates took place uh, with him creating the Gates Foundation. And so the book we've done on philanthropic capitalism is that this is just the next stage because in a way, just extraction by itself is too naked and people are catching on saying, we don't want this. So philanthropic capitalism shifts the gaze to say, oh no, he's giving. Mm -hmm. So the act of taking gets hidden by the tiny little bit that's given. And, um, and I, I don't think he's, you know, he's his own man. I don't think so. I think he's just the right face at this point. But it's a face that's getting very fatigued very fast because yeah. he doesn't look happy to me. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. I mean, you, to, be, to make, be making these decisions, you have to be disconnected from great spirit or mm. Mama Gaia or whatever the language you want to use. But that thing that is within us and beyond us, you know, to be in discord with that energy and live your life, it, it takes a toll, you know, it has to, because this is the, this is the reifying, this is the life affirming force that moves through us. This is the, the true source of joy and love and laughter and bliss and eros and, and life. And, and to be disconnected from that, which you must be to be doing this, it, it bears its it bears a cost, but also at the same time, the world is bearing a big cost, and and hopefully people are starting to wake up, to uh, you know, to wake up to to kind of what's happening. And he's just one of the, as you said, one of the kind of focal points yeah. of this focus. But really, we need to expand our gaze and and start to see that this is a machine. It's a machine called empire. And it used to be that you could march in with your guns and your army and just take whatever land or country that you wanted, you know? And then at a certain point, you realize, okay, we can't do that. We, now we have to buy it, you know? Like, we can't take slaves. We have to buy them. And we have to, like, buy them through the production that they create. And, and it's almost creating serfs in, in a way. So it's just the same mentality of yeah. empire just shifting strategies but the same energy behind it because they just can't get away with what they used to get away with. But there needs to Absolutely. be a, a radical a shift, a new octave, a new operating system beyond the operating system of empire. And, yeah. and that's you know, hopefully what we're all driving towards together in, here. In, in fact, the book, Oneness Versus 1%, I have talked about um, you know, new colonies. That basically, it's still colonialism. It's still empire. Except that you know, owning the seed is different from taking over land. It looks different, but it's the same enclosure. It's absolutely the same enclosure. 
the civilizing mission. You know, it used to be religion. You know, you're uncivilized because you're not like us. You're not Christian like us. Now the civilizing mission is is the tools that of the money machine. Yeah. Mm, yeah. If, if you are not using the tools I want to force on you, you are somehow primitive. And and then the primitiveness is built into new levels of economic punishment. And, and you're so right about both widening our gaze and deepening our consciousness. Mm. You know, doing both together. The widening of the gaze allows us to participate in a dynamic living world. And going deeper allows us to know what's the right way to live in this beautiful world. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I read something somewhere a while ago that we've never been in armed conflict with another country that had a McDonald's. And that may seem like something that's trivial, but actually, if you look a little deeper, think a little deeper, there's something very interesting about that, which is at the point that the real alliance is made and the real alliance is corporatism, you know, it's, it's actually a corporatocracy, a global corporatocracy. When there is an alliance made to allow at least one arm of that to penetrate the country, which is symbolized in this case by McDonald's, right? Like that's what, that's what just the symbol is. But that symbol means that there's a whole host of other levels of cooperation and corporatism that's happening. At that point, we're done fighting with them. You know, it's all, we're all on, the, they're all on the same team, so to speak, except the fighting happens. The fighting does happen with different, uh, you know, financial conflicts and financial moves that are being played. Of course, all of these agents have are motivated by win lose metrics and self interest. So there's you know there's financial conflict, but but nonetheless, like as soon as this kind of the the multinational corporatism gets into another country, it's like all right, they're an ally, you know, to some extent, and and it's just showing where the real nationalism lies and where the real globalism lies it's in it's in the money yeah i think it's it was thomas friedman who said that and he also wrote and said behind every mcdonald is a mcdonald douglas <laughs> that you know that actually it looks like friendly you know investments but like he says behind it is the military arm, saying, you know, we are there with the McDonnell Douglas. But, you know, I have two uh, little incidents with uh, with the McDonald story. <laughs> in 95, the big women's summit took place in Beijing. And, and of course, I was there. This young group of young women came up to me and said, Ronald McDonald is here without a visa. I said, who's Ronald McDonald? You know, <laughs> we didn't have a McDonald in India. <laughs> who's Ronald McDonald? I didn't know it's the name of the clown, clown that sits in front. So they said, will you help us? Get rid of him. I said, sure, if it's about McDonald, yeah. So we marched. We picked up Mr. Ronald McDonald from the McDonald in the women's conference. And then we took him into a toilet, put him there and locked him up. <laughs> and, is this a real we, person or is this a statue? It's, no, no, it's that little clown that sits in front of the, you know. But as a McDonald's. as a person, as a person, no, 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 just a, <laughs> no, no, the, just the, just the emblem, <laughs> just the emblem. And the other yeah. was, you know, the the young people in England were starting to find the connections between 
the meat sourcing of McDonald and the deforest, this was way back, deforestation of the Amazon. Right now it's, of course, GMO soya. And, and BBC was going to come and interview me uh, about comments on these movements. They were to come at 7 a.m. At quarter to seven, I get a call. We have been threatened to be sued by McDonald, you know, and BBC chickened out. You know? McDonald can threaten them and say, if you do a story on how nasty we are, we're going to sue you. So I think for me, the tragedy of our globalized times is having grown up in an India that had become free and independent and all the diversities were flourishing, you know, the diversities of our languages and our foods. And then globalization comes and thump on us. We had protests in India. We shut down the first McDonald's. We shut down the first KFC. People didn't want it. But, you know, bit by bit by bit, they just erode the regulatory system. And as you were saying, they basically steal the governments. Yeah. And part of what we have to do is A, Decide how much government in what sphere is desirable. I don't think governments have a right to try and tell us eating bad food is a requirement. Yeah. Yeah? Because that's what they're doing under the, the laws written by the junk food industry. And the second really is where we de- do need governance to, to reclaim the democratic control over governance structures. Because that's what globalization eroded. Yeah? And that's you know, it, it, it will be different. It might, you know, it won't be the kind of systems that we created after the wars and after, for example, our independence. I think they will definitely be far more decentralized, far more diverse, far more, uh, far more self-determining and self-reliant. Yeah. What can people do? You know, what can people do to uh, to start? You know, besides just raising their own consciousness and awareness, you know, how do how do we, how does every individual who's been moved by this podcast is listening to it, how do we contribute to this more beautiful world that we know we need? But, you know, we all eat. And we now know, we have enough knowledge that what is grown, how it's grown, what we eat can either devastate the planet and our health or regenerate the planet and our health. So, you know, having consciously chosen for the last four decades of my life to put my ethical, ecological, intellectual energies on redefining and reclaiming the food system from a food system that serves the poison cartel and serves the billionaires to a food system that serves all beings on earth, that serves every human being so that people have food and that serves the planet as a whole, I think beginning with A, eating, two, understanding how some sub cheating is going on to make costly food cheap, unhealthy food affordable. Why is our right to food not being protected? And then I would say whoever can start growing your food. Yeah. Beautifully, beautifully said, and uh, and and we're trying to abide by that here. We have a we have a beautiful little 120 acre farm, and we're uh, mm-hmm. we got our chickens and chickens and sheep and turkeys and emus and bees and and fish and uh, and you know the food forest and the plants and 
it's uh, it's been a beautiful process to to be a part of that and watch that flourish. There's a deep satisfaction in it, um, for sure. And I think uh, this is definitely a big part of the way forward. Yeah, be be a garden, grow a garden. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, be a garden, grow a garden. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your work and just the light that you are in the world. I can't tell you how many people have. Uh, suggested that we have a podcast together so you're making a lot of uh, a lot of my listeners very happy that uh that we made this connection happen and um, thank just, you Audrey. pleasure meeting you yeah it was a pleasure to meet you as well and count me as an ally if there's any way i can support in anything just reach Wonderful. out and we'll be, uh, we'll be in touch yeah all thank right. you it sounds good bye take care Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Vandana Shiva. It's so important to open up your eyes to these different perspectives that are happening in different places around the world. So I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as me. Please check out her books. I love y'all and I'll see you next week.